This talk is brought to you by iBiology.org, and this audio was taken from a video available on our website. Well, first of all, thank you very much for doing this, Dr. Nurse Paul. It's a pleasure to be here, Dan. Well, it's a pleasure to be in your presence, and I really appreciate you doing it. Let's talk about science. What is science? Do you know, that isn't such an easy question to answer. Um, I, I, I've been a scientist for 45 years and I'm still struggling. The way I sort of think about it is, what are the attributes of science? It's an activity about wanting to know how the natural world and ourselves works. Good scientists are skeptical about their own ideas. They get evidence about a phenomenon. They get an idea, a hypothesis about um, what uh, can be used to explain it. Then they test it and they test it to destruction and if it survives, then it keeps going and they test it again. What about the idea that to be a scientist, particularly to be a world-class scientist such as you are, there's a genius within you. This idea which you're either born with or you're not. I'm not sure I completely buy that. I think that a scientist needs to have something inborn, but they also have to acquire ways of thinking from experience of the whole world. And sometimes you can acquire what I call a low cunning in research. You, you sort of get used to how nature tries to fool you, or perhaps how you try to fool yourself. And there is over the years a sort of maturing of your thinking that comes with experience, comes with interacting with others. So I think it's both inborn, but also something you acquire and something that you gain from interaction experience with the rest of the research community. Were you a outstanding, brilliant student at school? Not really, if I can be quite honest with you. I came from not an academic family. Uh, my father worked in a factory for H.J. Hines, actually, looked after machines. My mother was a, was a cleaner. I was the only one in my family to stay at school beyond the age of 15. I wasn't good at exams. Um, I was very um, erratic. So sometimes I could be near the top or even the top of my class Next time, I could be near the bottom. It just, I just didn't seem to be very consistent. But I got through it. <laughs> I did manage to eventually get to university, and that was actually quite difficult. And as I gradually moved up the tree, so to speak, it became easier and easier because we didn't rely so much on rote learning. I've got a terrible memory. can never remember things. It did rely on trying to understand very difficult problems. And... Um, that I wasn't bad at. What I wasn't good at was remembering all the bits of information that you needed to um, pass exams well. Well, for example, in at or near beginning chemistry, could you memorize the elements table? I, of course, was supposed to, but I kept getting it wrong. But when I understood what the table was based on, when I could put order in there and think about electron shells and so on, the whole thing fell into shape. What, what really mattered for me was understanding the basis and the order. Then I could put the names to it. If I was just learning the names with no order, I was hopeless. I have a feeling that any number of parents and grandparents listening would be very much encouraged <laughs> to find that someone who didn't have a particularly good memory, might have been a poor memory as a matter of fact, and who didn't test well, grew up to win a Nobel Prize. They should feel really comfortable if they have a child or a grandchild who is interested in the world, who is curious about the world, because that will keep going. That will serve them well for the rest of their lives. If they're just learning stuff by rote, 
so they can get good marks. And we have too much of an obsession with grades. They, they will do well, even if they may not have the highest marks in their class. And what advice could you give to a parent or grandparents if they have that kind of child? They say, listen, he's smart, but he, he doesn't do well in tests. He sometimes fails his tests, and he can't memorize the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. I'd take him out into the natural world. I'd show him the plants, the bees, the insects, the birds, the moon, the stars, see if that interests him or her. And if it does, I wouldn't worry. I want to get back now to, to your story. So you go on, you get into university. And by the way, correct me if I'm wrong, you actually never passed what you should have passed to get in in terms of foreign language. No, I, I had great trouble getting into university. I can tell you that story. We, we have um, a series of rather simple examinations. You can pass muster in a, a range of subjects. Yeah. Uh, and then you have the more specialist ones. In my case, it was the sciences. I actually did the more specialist advanced ones early in my schooling. I was very good at that. But I could not pass the, all the lower grade examinations that you needed to get into university. And, <laughs> and I managed to fail this examination in French six times on the trot. I mean, six times, one after another. And it wasn't I wasn't trying. I was trying very hard. I was simply hopeless at it. Right. And, of course, that meant I was rejected from every university I applied to. No Oxford, no Cambridge. No, Cambridge offered me a place as long as I passed that exam, for example, which I continued to fail. And then eventually, I got into the University of Birmingham. Good university, but not the top school. And the reason I did, and I, this is a nice story, the professor, the head of department, was looking through the candidates that they had rejected. What on earth was he doing doing that? But he was looking through the candidates they'd rejected. He saw my CV, he saw I'd done well in the serious examinations and why I'd been rejected. And he asked me to come up and see him. And he spent the day with me, a head of department, with this 17-year-old. At the end of it, he said, um, if you come here, I'll fix the university senate so they let you in. And that's exactly what he did. Well, it's a tough word, but in effect, he cheated to get you in college. Yes, yes, that's right. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> I want to get back to the, to the students, the young people coming up. Listen, you, you can educate, you can illuminate. How do you inspire? What, imagine for me a moment a six-year-old or eight or nine-year-old, can you say anything that you think might inspire them to at least have a something more than a passing interest mm. in science? You put your finger on the exact point. Inspiration is key. We have to inspire, actually our population, but particularly our young people. Our teaching has to inspire. And uh, when I go to lectures sometimes and I listen to somebody who's very accomplished and they're so flat, so non-inspirational. I think, what are we doing? We write scientific papers now. I can't even bear to read my own scientific papers. I mean, there's nothing inspirational about them at all by the way that we have to publish and we get edited out and saying anything interesting and so on. I find it more interesting to read the 19th century literature about science because we are losing the ability to inspire by the way that we're communicating science. Getting back to the question you asked me, it's crucial to have good inspirational teachers in school. We absolutely need it. The fact that in primary school children, and that is up to uh, the age of 11, I think in both the US and UK, less than one or two percent of teachers have any scientific training. I mean, that cannot be right. 
And then we have to train teachers to be inspirational. Now, how can they be inspirational? One part is actually to teach science through doing science, through investigating the world. A second is, of course, simply to have inspirational and charismatic teachers. What would I say to a seven, eight, nine, ten-year-old? It's what inspired me. Go and look at the moon at night. Go and look at the stars and wonder. And wonder what it all means and you're already on the first step to science. And what we have to do in education is to take that natural wonder that children have and develop it into understanding how all of that works. Well, I want to get back to what you described, what scientists do and how they do it. What makes a good scientist? A scientist is always curious. They desperately want to know the answers. They want to know how something works. That's really the key thing, being interested in the world about you. Learning it as a trade at a later stage depends on other features. Having a good advisor who teaches you the right values and culture of science is crucial. You're not there simply to get a paper in the best possible journal. We all like that. You're there to understand how the world works. It's either in a little way or a big way, and as long as you do it in a proper way, you have contributed. And I think the, the right values for science and the respect and, um, for, for data is really, really important. Fundamentally, you should be aimed at improving knowledge of the world in a, a process that is really quite ethical and idealistic. And I think you need to constantly hang on to that. I don't think of science as having the, the ethos that you've just described. Let's talk about that. What is the ethos? If you're there to find out how the world works, and if you're prepared to cut corners by which I mean ignoring things that don't fit with what you, you believe to be correct, um, or um, to speak up data that isn't quite as clear as it should be, that's usually seen as a sort of ethical problem of cheating. But in addition to that, it's stopping you getting to your ultimate goal, which is to understand how it works. Because if this data you don't like is actually real, my word, you've got to take account of it. And if you're not taking account of it, you are not getting to your goal. So although we view it as an ethical issue, I think I prefer the word you use, the right ethos. In addition, it's more than that. It's fundamental to actually producing the knowledge, reliable knowledge, that you need for good science. Let's talk about the importance of science. Mm. Why should anybody care about science beyond a certain fundamental, elemental level? Well, I think there's two answers to that question. One is um, the contribution it makes to culture and civilization. When the first director, I'm blanking on his name, I haven't got a good memory, I you remember, <laughs> of the Fermilab accelerator was being um, interviewed, cross-examined in the house in Capitol Hill. And he was asked the question, what use would the accelerator be for the defense of the country? And his answer was, he did not think it would be of any direct use for the defense of the country, but he thought it made the country worth defending. Very nice point. And what he was really saying, of course, is that a, a country that respects culture, civilization, and knowledge needs defending. And that's one thing science can do. But of course, science does much more than that. Society invests in science because the knowledge that's acquired through it 
can be used for the public good in the most general sense. It is very difficult to imagine any minute of your day or anybody else's day that is not influenced in some way by scientific discovery. It is, in fact, the driver, in my view, of much of economic growth and also all the things that we care about, protecting the environment, knowing about climate change, being able to assess the uh, quality of water and so on. All of these rely on science. So the public good in the most general sense depends upon science. Well, you mentioned the economic benefits of it. Fair or unfair to say that the economic dominance of the, most of the 20th century of the United States was science-based? I think it's a reasonable statement. Um, I think it's sometimes a little difficult to know, as economists love to be able to argue, that a certain percentage, 32, 34, 37%, <laughs> um, was due to that. Um, a knowledge economy is important, and sometimes when people ask me, we'll prove it, I say, well, imagine an ignorant economy. And does that work? In other words, if we don't have knowledge, could you imagine how we could drive our, our economy? I think the United States has been extremely liberal in its thinking about science. So in the public sphere, it funds open research that's publicly available um, across the world, but in the United States in particular. And then, of course, commercial interests can pick that up and it goes into a more closed structure because for a commercial advantage. But it relies on that public base. One is for the generation of the knowledge. Two is for the manpower and women power that are generated that can um, fuel um, the uh, commercial uh, work. And thirdly, just a culture that out of knowledge you can generate um, interesting applications. You need the right culture for it. And that's exactly what the U.S. has, or much of the U.S. has, and I would argue is um, a very, very significant contribution um, to the economy here and to the great quality of life that the United States enjoys. So they must keep preserving and supporting their basic science. I can't resist asking you, and keep in mind, I've spent most of my career in radio and television, primarily in television, and television it leads to arrogance, it leads to egoism, and in science there is this perception that because, particularly in the upper regions of science, you deal with things that people by and large don't understand, there's this feeling of arrogance. It must exist. And how did you resist it yourself? It does exist, and we have to be very wary of it. We have to have the humility, first of all, of recognizing in our own profession how much we do not understand. So even in our own research, our own professional activity, we need to be, have some humility. When it comes to interacting with society, with elected political representatives, with the public at large, we cannot retreat into, believe me, I'm the expert. We have to do more than that. The experts have got to get out there and engage. Many scientists are no good at that sort of thing. We've got to be honest about it. Some are. We need to encourage those who are good at talking to the public to engage. And that all has to be part of the system. So I think you're right. We do have a challenge. It's easy to be arrogant, but very dangerous to be arrogant, and we have to avoid it. Our discussions of science that we see in the daily newspaper or on television, mm -hmm. what little attention television pays to science, is it more 
ideological, political, or more scientific? Well, science journalists do on the whole a pretty good job. But there are certain areas of science which are mired in ideological and political issues. I mean, climate change is the obvious one. And um, when you see this happening, it distresses me enormously because there isn't a focus on what the science is telling you. There's a focus on um, an ideology which doesn't like those sorts of results. So, for example, let, let's take climate change. Now, if the climate is warming considerably and human activity is contributing to it, and the vast majority of experts in this area think that is the case, then what you have to do to be able to deal with that is have worldwide concerted action. And a consequence of that is, is that there's restrictions on nations and on companies and on individuals which some of a particular political hue simply don't like. They don't like the fact that it may slow down economic growth and sometimes um, they think about developing nations and slowing down their economic growth. But instead of arguing those sorts of arguments, which we have to work our way through, many of them now start attacking the science itself in ridiculous ways. I, I've never seen so many absurd arguments that you can get, get from um, some of those who call themselves climate sceptics but are seldom sceptical themselves of what they, are, what they are saying. What we need to do is get the science right and that means listening to the majority of experts in the area and then work out the consequences. Don't be arrogant and think that you can just overturn the, the scientific evidence and the scientific arguing in the same way as you could do in a school debating chamber because you cannot do that and it's really quite wrong to do that. Raised climate change. Yeah. The, the Wall Street Journal, no reason in particular why you have said this, or would have seen this, but by Lamar Smith, he's a powerful man in the United States yep. Congress, he chairs the subcommittee on science. It's headlined, it's uh, opinion in climate areas, the, the climate change religion. Yeah. But I want to bounce two things that he said. I think people are confused about climate change. They're confused about science and climate change. So for example, he says, given that for the past decade and a half, global temperature increases have been negligible and that the worsening storm scenario has been widely debunked, the pronouncements from the Obama administration, but he means basically those who argue about climate change, sound more like scare tactics than fact-based declarations. Does he have a point? Is this talk about climate change primarily scare tactics? Well, why doesn't he listen to the two greatest science academies in the world, which is the National Academy of Sciences in the United States and the Royal Society, which invented modern science, of which I'm president at this present time, who have both done major studies into this area, reasonable, rational studies. And they would disagree with both of those things that he said. Based on their science, based, based on, on their the research. evidence, based on the logic. Um, the, uh, uh, the point about the 15, last 15 years, and remember I'm not a climate scientist, all I do yep. is listen to the experts, is that the time scale they've chosen, he's chosen to point out there, is one that just happens to favour his argument. If he goes back 20 years, it's a different answer. He's cherry picking data that fits his argument. When he talks about, um, uh, for example, extreme weather, if the temperature of the planet of the atmosphere is rising, the possibility of more intense weather will go up because it can absorb more water vapour. It's just simple physics. I'm afraid he doesn't know 
what he's talking about. I repeat, even look at the headline there. Read the headline out again. The climate change religion. What that is implying is the tactics of the lobbyists. Listen to the vast majority of experts and they will disagree with what he says. But the counter-argument, and we're not going to go through the whole argument, but the counter-argument of that is, those who deny this, their argument is, yeah. they are frequently in error but never in doubt. Well, let me put it another way. If you were ill, if you had a cancer, and you went to the hospital, and you looked for treatment, would you take the treatment that is supported by the great majority of um, clinician scientists who recommend a certain treatment, or would you listen to the treatment by a few standing on the sidelines who are often political, often commentators in the press? What would you do? Well, I the answer speaks for itself. Of course, and it's the same logic here. Let's get the science right, then you can have the politics. Don't mix the politics and the ideology up with the science, and that's exactly what's happening in that article. I understand your hope. I'm not sure that it's a realistic hope. Of course not, but I have to say what I think's right. Well, you obviously have a passion for it, but do scientists in general, do you have fun? I have a lot of fun. I do. Now, sometimes it's a bit stressful. You know, just before this interview, I was writing a paper yet again because it's been rejected for publication. And um, it's stressful to think, how can I present this in a better way so that we can get it accepted? Let me get this straight. Mm. Nobel Prize winner, and you submit a paper and it gets kicked back? Of course it does. And that's just right. There's no doubt there's probably some things wrong which have to be sorted out. It's part of the process. If it isn't perfect, you may have misunderstood it. It may be that the aberration that you're seeing in the data is not an aberration, it may be real. So you have to repeat it to see quite what, 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 is, um, what is happening. Even in my case, there's been long periods of, of, of drudgery interspersed with uh, extraordinary eureka-style moments. So it's great when you discover things, but there are tough patches. What was your best eureka moment? Well, I have two, actually. One which is, maybe it's a little technical. I was interested in what controls the division of a yeast cell from one to two. Very simple problem. It underlies the growth and reproduction of every living thing, so it is important. And I was looking for uh, mutants, that's uh, 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 cells which contain damaged genes, which means they couldn't reproduce properly. And because they couldn't reproduce properly, they couldn't divide, but they grew bigger and bigger, so you could see them under the microscope. And I was looking through and collecting these sorts of, um, these sorts of mutant strains because they helped us understand things. And then under the microscope, I saw something different. I hadn't predicted it. I had no idea about it. And it, it, it's obvious, but what I saw was a cell or a series of cells um, dividing smaller than usual. Remember I said I was looking for ones yeah. that couldn't divide? And I looked down the microscope and I thought, they're dividing smaller than usual. What can that mean? And my mind raced through it, and within seconds I was thinking, they are dividing prematurely before they've grown to the right size. That means that the reproductive process that normally takes a certain amount of time has been accelerated. And that one observation actually opened up this whole new field. I ran around the lab, I told and shouted everybody what I'd seen and to other labs. People thought I was crazy because they didn't quite go through the, the thinking of this it. This is um, creating a whole new world of genetics. It was a significant step to a whole new world in understanding what controlled the division of a cell from one to two. And so that started me with my work. I mean, I was in my mid-twenties. I wasn't very old. 
The second one, some years later, my colleagues and myself had discovered genes that controlled this reproductive process. So we'd made a lot of progress. But I was working with yeast. And being perfectly honest, I may be interested in yeast, but I don't expect the rest of the world mostly to be interested in yeast. And so the question was, do human beings, do human cells have the same genes and therefore the same control processes? And we did an experiment, and it was done by um, a, a lady called Melanie Lee in my lab. Um, what we did was to take yeast cells that, that couldn't divide properly because of a defect, and we sprinkled on them human genes. And the argument was, if there was an equivalent gene in human beings, and that entered in the yeast cell that was defective, then now that yeast cell could grow and divide normally. And this was a, a ludicrous experiment, because yeast and human beings diverged apart from each other maybe 1.5 or more billion years ago. Dinosaurs went extinct 65 million years ago, just a, a, a flicking time in comparison. So that experiment shouldn't have worked, but it did. We found cells that could grow and divide. They, they contained a human gene. We analyzed it and we found it was exactly the same gene as the yeast gene. And what that told us was that the process was controlled in exactly the same way. And it had been like that for 1.5 or more billion years. So that was your Eureka That was clearly... Did you go dancing around the laboratory and shouting, we got it? Uh, this time, I wasn't looking down the microscope, I was looking at the computer that was comparing the, the gene sequences, and this time it was obvious. This time I went round and shouted, this time everybody got it. Interesting, fascinating. But why should anybody care about it? Right. Well, what this did was identify a network of genes, and of course it wasn't just my work, I told you, right. it's collaborative, there's other labs that contributed to all of this. It identified a network of genes that uh, determined whether a cell was accurately copied so it could divide, and whether that division process would take place. Right. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because it underlies the growth and reproduction of every living thing or most living things on this planet. I mean, of the trees out there, of you, of me, of the fly that's buzzing around, all the cells in that body, uh, in all those different bodies of all those different organisms, is controlled in the same way by the same network. So it is a contribution to our culture, to our understanding of the world. But that isn't the reason you asked the question. You, I think, were thinking in a more utilitarian way. What use might it be? Exactly. And the reason it's useful is First of all, it can make us think about how you can control that process, because we know the main elements that do it. And secondly, it goes wrong in cancer. Cancer is uncontrolled cell division, and there's many causes of it, but in the end, they all have to focus on this gene network to promote the cells to divide. It's not that it's going to provide a cure for cancer, because all cells have this particular network. But I do argue that unless you understand this, you cannot even think properly about cures for cancer. And it's, it, it's the, uh, the background knowledge that you need before you can translate this um, understanding into cures. And so it is very important. And indeed, um, quite a few pharmaceutical companies, I'm not involved in that work myself, um, are working on this network or on other components that interact with that network to look for new ways of treating and diagnosing cancer. 
And of course, you will get a percentage of what the pharmaceutical companies make out of it. Well, for some reason, I didn't manage to put something together that allowed me to do that. So the answer is no, but I don't have a problem with that. <laughs> Let's talk a moment about the, what are the directions of science in the 21st century? What are the major directions of science now? Well, there's of course many, and the most interesting ones are probably the ones that we're not going to predict today. <laughs> Um, but the ones that I'm particularly interested in, in physics, um, dark matter, dark energy. Fifteen years ago, um, we thought we understood, by looking at the universe, that we understood most of the matter in the world, in the universe. Today, we know we are only looking at around 15% or some such low percentage, because there's a whole mass of stuff out there which is contributing to gravity and galaxies and so on that we have yet to detect. It's, you mean we don't see it? We, we don't see it with our normal ways of measuring fundamental particles and so on. There's something else out there that we have yet to discover. Excuse me, Doctor, but how do we know that? Because if you look at the rotation and movement of galaxies, it's clear they have much more mass and there's also much more energy, which is a related argument, um, than we can predict by the visible mass that we know about. It's incredible, isn't it? Fifteen years ago, we thought we knew it all. Today, we know 85% is unknown. And we might find it in the Large Hadron Collider in, um, in Geneva, or we may find it with um, some of these new telescopes. But it's a big problem, and it's one we didn't even know we had a couple of decades ago. So, dark matter. Dark matter and dark energy, which is related. In biological sciences, well, here I'm biased because I'm a biologist, and I think that um, what I think we're going to see is a, a really good understanding of how cells work. Cells are the basic building block of all living things. You were once a single cell. You underwent repeated divisions to make you. And understanding how cells work is really uh, key to understanding how life works. If we understand how a cell works, how it organizes itself in space and time, how it is homeostatic, maintains itself, how it Excuse can me, homeostatic? homeostatic means it's how a new word to me. it's a new word it's, it's Greek and I it's how it maintains itself in its present state so if it gets perturbed it can correct for this all this is a complex regulatory system a complex system and understanding how cells work is going to be informed I mean by knowing all the components and what they do but how they're connected which is a lot to do with how we manage information right. and the reason I mention that is that all these advances in computing and and so on are going to contribute, even though it doesn't seem to be related, and understanding complex systems is going to contribute to understanding how cells work. So that's going to be my second pick. Right. Over the coming half century, I think we'll make great progress in understanding how cells work. And that'll get us closer to understanding how life works. You're a bit about talking about support for sustainability. Explain that to me and why it means so much to you. Well, we talked about science driving economic growth. But my, my view is in the planet of finite resources, we have to have economic advancement in a sustainable framework so that we don't have um, limitations on natural resources like water, for example, um, that we, and food. And we have to always have our mind thinking about that. I'm an optimist by nature and by experience. But we have a, a planet now populated by what? at least seven, maybe eight billion mm -hmm. people. Yeah. How can you be optimistic? Yeah. When you realistically, if you will, with a scientific mind, look at the facts. 
we do have some economic solutions to this to do with redistribution. There is really things that can be done which we somehow never managed to do properly, which means that even with today's resources and the food wastage, you know, 40% of food in advanced nations is wasted. I mean, 40%. And I mean, if we could only get all of that right, we would be a long way to solving the problem. So there's things to do with politics and distribution and equality, which would help greatly. Then there's science, because science can help solve these problems too. Uh, if we look at crop production, ever since the Green Revolution of the 1960s, we, where um, principles of, of, uh, of proper plant breeding combined with um, good husbandry and fertilizer and irrigation, we've seen a dramatic increase in food production. There's a, a field in Rothamsted. This is a, a, an agricultural station in the United Kingdom, which has been growing wheat, I think, for something like, and I'm not sure I'm going to get the figures right here, but over 150 years, maybe 200 years. And the uh, uh, production now per acre is now eight to ten times higher than it was over exactly the same land. Uh, because of the science. Because of the science. And we still have places to go. Now, you've got me on climate change, now I'll go on to GM, genetically modified crops. We have the possibility of helping um, feed the world, cultivating marginal habitats by better plant breeding, which will include um, genetic modification. And I think that the uh, objection to um, genetic modification of crops on the whole is irrational. In the United States, it's less of a contentious issue. But if I go back to Europe, it's a hugely contentious issue. Well, it is a building issue in this country. It is. Genetic modification. And let me say one thing about these two issues, which come up all the time and are politically and ideologically influenced. What really interests me, and I don't have a solution for this, in the US, on the whole, um, GMOs have been generally accepted, yeah. certainly better than in Europe, but there's um, much greater debate about climate change, whereas in Europe it's the complete reverse. And I find that interesting and also tells us that this isn't to do with science, it's to do with ideology and politics. It is true that in the United States, it's not as hot an issue as climate change, no pun intended. And I <laughs> take your point, it's interesting that in Europe it's the reverse. reverse yeah. But there is a, a, a building movement of resisting these genetically modified foods and saying, yep. listen, we're, we're behind Europe yep. on this. But, you know, as individuals, as a people, as a society, as a nation, what do we do about this? I mean, I'm interested in having pure food as the next guy. Well, I'll tell you what I think is very important here, and the scientists and maybe the, the commercial interests failed here with GMOs. We didn't really have a good and proper debate about the issues early enough. It was just assumed these would be acceptable to the public when the public didn't really know what was going on. One thing was the um, very aggressive uh, marketing and advertising by companies, which people got deeply suspicious of. But the second reason, which was really interesting, when um, normal, the normal public were asked the question, why don't you like GMOs? And the answer was, uh, by far the most frequent answer in the surveys that I was involved in is, we don't want to eat food which has genes in them. Now, the reason I mention this is that this is something that a scientist can't conceive of because they know all food has genes in it, it's because it's made from living organisms. Now, they weren't saying foreign genes or anything more sophisticated, just genes. And 
it, it made me realize that we, we had never even gone out and asked the public what bothered them. Right. Now that's just plain stupid. We were just stupid. What we need to do is engage the public, know what the issues are, know what their fears are, and then we have to answer them. And so it's proper engagement, proper dialogue, I think helps sort out all these problems. Well, certainly any, any talk, any mention of genes is right in your wheelhouse. Yep. As a broad generality, I take your point. Mm -hmm. Should I be worried about GMO food? No. Um, we've been modifying the genetic makeup of food for ever since um, the agricultural revolution um, in um, 10,000 BC. I mean, we've been doing it by crossing different plants together, and we could have made very dangerous plants and very dangerous animals by crossing in certain. Um, genetic material that could cause it. We now can do it in a way where we can introduce genes from more distant organisms, um, which gives you greater um, possibilities. But the key point is not how you do it, but what you make. And this is what's so crazy about it. You can have a production line making cars or making tanks, and they are very similar. Cars are safe, tanks are not safe, at least for those, they kill people, yet the means by which they made are the same. Thank this you. is the basic argument behind GMOs, that, that you can make something safe or you can make something dangerous by conventional breeding or by GMOs. Focus on what you make, not how you make it. Let's talk about the Nobel Prize. Where were you when you got the word? Well, I was in an, an office with Jim Watson of Watson and Crick fame. It was in London, it was um, 2001, and then somebody came in from the office and said, um, your office has just phoned and they would like you to turn on your mobile phone. And so I went out, it was a pretty clunky mobile phone, and I, um, there was a recorded message, and I listened to the recorded message, and it was from somebody with a very heavy accent. I don't know if you've ever listen to a Swedish accent speaking English, but it's a bit like speaking English with a hot potato in the mouth. And I didn't understand what was being said. I picked up... He's speaking English. He's speaking English, but I couldn't quite in get Scandinavian it. Scandinavian English. In a Scandinavian accent, of course. And I, of course, can't speak Swedish, so what am I complaining <laughs> about? But um, I, um, I, I listened to it, and I thought, I think they're asking me to comment on... Um, who's got the Nobel Prize this year? I mean, that was my first sort of thought. So I then went back and listened to it again. And then it gradually trickled through. They were telling me that I had won the Nobel Prize. I just didn't quite sort of, it hadn't sort of sunk in. So I sort of stopped there. And then I thought, well, I'd better go back to the office. So I went back to the room with Jim and the other sitting there. And I said, do excuse me, just listen to this. this is one of the most stupid things I've ever said in my life. Um, do excuse me, but... Um, I, I've got to go now because I think I've won the Nobel Prize. <laughs> and I just left to try and um, confirm it, which I did when I got back to my office. It's one of the most cliches questions in all of television. But what was going through your mind right from the get-go when you understood you were pretty sure that you'd won a Nobel Prize? Well, it wasn't a complete surprise because I'd won several prizes that sort of lead up to it. It didn't come like a meteorite hitting me. But the Nobel Prize is the only scientific prize that anybody in the world knows about. The fact is you probably wouldn't be talking to me today if I hadn't won the Nobel Prize. You suddenly become a figure that people 
in a minor sort of way um, pay attention to. And so you, you do become a sort of different person and I knew enough about it to realize that was going to happen, which indeed it did. But you know, it, there's a lot of luck in winning a Nobel Prize. Let's be blunt about it. I know many scientists of the same quality. You do have to be in the right place in an area at the right time. It has to be work that can be identified with two or three people. And if you get all those stars together, then the Nobel Prize can come. But there's many of my colleagues who I know are equally deserving. But I'm a great believer in the cliche that where preparation meets opportunity is what many people call luck. Yes. Well, look, I, I, I don't, I'm a pretty good scientist. I'm not trying to, um, to deny that. I have exploited serendipity. I told you the story of how I found these small cells dividing. I wasn't looking for those. But when I saw them, I interpreted it, and I got it right. Because you had prepared yourself for that moment. Somehow, I mean, of course, I hadn't prepared myself in the sense I was looking for them. But soon as nature gave it to me, I recognized it. And that's how I view it. And that's how I view a lot of biology. You have to follow where nature takes you. And so I, I was very open to that. And so indeed it was serendipitous, indeed it was luck. But you did have to, indeed, as you're implying, capitalize on that luck. You have a very interesting, what we call, backstory. Let's talk about your own genetic background and this interesting, fascinating story of what you found out fairly late in life. Well, um, when I was working in the United States, as president of Rockefeller University, in which we're now um, sitting, um, I applied for a green card. And I was rejected by Homeland Security. And I was a bit miffed by that, because at the time, I was president of a university, I had a Nobel Prize, I was knighted, and, and you I was get rejected. A green card. I couldn't get a green card, okay? And the reason they didn't give me a green card was because they didn't like my birth certificate. And my birth certificate, um, identified me as a British citizen and when and where I was born, but it did not name my parents. Now, I knew that I had a birth certificate of that sort. It's called a short birth certificate because uh, I'd asked my parents about it. And they said, well, you have a short one because a long one was more expensive. And being naive, I thought, well, good enough reason. I wrote away for a long birth certificate. It came back. I was in my office just a, a few yards from here. and opened the envelope, it was given by my secretary to me, and she said, I didn't send it back to Homeland Security because I wondered whether you'd got the name of your mother wrong. And I said, of course I didn't get the name of my mother wrong. I opened this letter, I looked at it, and there were several people in the room, and you know sometimes there's an sort of emotional intensity rises, and they were all looking at me, and I opened the birth certificate, and I looked at the name of my mother, and it wasn't the name of my mother, it was the name of my sister. And I looked at this and I thought, how could this be? So then I looked for the father. And under the father, there was just a line. There was no name. And so I stared at this thing. And then slowly, the coins sort of began to drop very slowly in my head. And um, I realized that I'd been brought up by my grandparents. So the people you thought were your mother and your father were actually my grandmother and my grandfather. What happened was this. My sister, or of course, who is my mother, I know it gets very confusing, uh, got pregnant at 17. Like a Victorian novel, she was sent away to her aunts. Um, I was born, my grandmother came up, and um, 
lived there for several months and then came back pretending she was the mother. To Let me get this straight. Daughter. Your mother is pregnant. She's sent away. Very common in Victorian times and to this no, day. No, this wasn't Victorian times. This was just after the Second World War, of course. Ah, just after the Second World War. I want to be very respectful here. Any thought in your mind that your father, whom I understand you still don't know, might have been an American serviceman? In fact, it could be anybody. I mean, um, but I imagine that's possible. I mean, there were many American servicemen in the UK. And she loved jazz. And of course, jazz came over with the um, um, American GIs. Of course. You were what age when you found this out? I was in my late 50s. My mother, sister, died early. I see. So I never um, had that discussion with her, which would have been, of course, of great interest to me. To put it mildly, what a shock this must have been. I, I was a bit sort of um, confused for a little while. Um, I, I remember I, I told my doctor here uh, when I was living in New York, and he looked at me and he said, um, I hope you're under um, um, uh, um, investigation, you know, psychi... Uh, and I hope you're in therapy. I hope I was in therapy, that's right. That's the word I was blanking on. It never occurred to me. I was brought up happily. I had no problems. It was all straightforward. Well, it wasn't very straightforward in the fact that your it, grandmother was... None of this was straightforward, but it was very straightforward as a child for I me. And um, I was, as I said, happy. I think it would have been better had they told me but they didn't, and in the end, I can't say I came out as damaged goods. So um, I'm okay, and I'm grateful for what they did. Ever find your father, who he was? No, that remains... Um, it's a blank? A blank. Aren't you curious enough to well, run you your know, own investigation? Yeah, I am a geneticist, so if this was a Hollywood film, I would sequence my own genome, and then, you know, go out and, um, and, and um, use that information. Now, I am a good enough geneticist to know but with that sequence, you'd have to do a lot of analysis and you have to do a lot of work to be able to make sense of it. Maybe a few more years, if nobody has volunteered, I'll, I'll have a go myself. What a story. <laughs> oh, thank you. Very good. Thank I'm, you. Great I'm interview. To you. Thank Great you very interview. Much. Thank you so much. Thank you. You were terrific. No, you were no, nice to me. Very good teacher. Visit us at iBiology.org for more free talks from the world's top scientists. This talk was brought to you with support from the National Science Foundation, the National Institute of General Medical Sciences, and the Lasker Foundation.